Well, good morning. I, uh, when I was in high school, I was part of the wrestling team. In high school, I weighed in at a powerful 158 pounds and uh, wrestled for several years uh, with our high school team. And we, we went in uh, to a tournament uh, with uh, Jefferson High. Jefferson High always won the district. They were the best wrestlers, and uh, uh, we, we very rarely uh, could beat them. And we went in one day, and I was going in uh, against a guy who had beat me several times before. And we got into the match, and, and he worked uh, a half Nelson on me, which was a strong move, and, and uh, rolled me over onto my shoulders. Uh, and if you know anything about wrestling, the, the deal is get the shoulders down and you get pinned. He was rolling me over, and he was very close. And I was arching my back, arching my back. And I could see, kind of upside down, I could see the ref starting to count. Uh, and he was about ready to call the pin, how long my shoulders were on the ground. And as I'm sitting there struggling and thinking, I'm done, I realize that my opponent has gotten too high. His body weight is too high. And so right at that moment, as he's about to pin me, I take him and I flip him over. And the ref's like, reversal, two points. And not only do I flip him over, but I slam him down. And I pin him, and I win, I win the match in that day against Jefferson High, 158 pounds. And I just want to relive the moment. Yes. Whew, that feels good. Man, I was good once. You know, it looked, like, it looked like I was done for. That my opponent uh, was going to pin me. And that there was no way I was going to get out of that grasp, uh, that hold. And then there was a radical reversal. And that's a big picture I, I want us to see this morning. Is that our God is a God of radical reversal. And he does that in our lives and in our communities. And I just hope that we will see that through his word of God, through Esther 7 and 8. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you that you're a God who enters into our midst. I thank you that you're a God who's not far away. That you're in the scenes, you're behind the scenes, but you're working with your powerful love towards us. Uh, that you uh, move us closer to you. And so, Father, this morning, would your Holy Spirit uh, fill this room? Would you let us see who you are and how you work? And we thank you that you're a God of radical reversal. In your precious name, amen. Well, what I'd like to do is to do like we did last week, is to share some of the story and then pull out some, some spiritual truths uh, that we see in the passage of Esther 7 and 8. We left last week at the end of 6 where Haman had just got finished. Haman's the enemy. He got finished parading Mordecai around. He hated Mordecai. And yet the king said, we're going to honor Mordecai. And Haman, I want you to be the one to take him out on my horse and tell everybody that he is honored by the king. And so Haman had to follow the king's orders and he went and took... Mordecai around the city giving him praise 
absolutely humiliated, defeated. He goes home to, to be with his wife and friends, and she heaps more failure upon him, telling him he won't recover from this. And she says these words, you will surely fall before Mordecai. As they're having that conversation, the king's guards come and they take Haman to the palace to go and have the second banquet that Esther had prepared for Haman and for the king. Now, if you remember at this point, Esther had not yet told the king what her request was. We've been waiting for her to do that. We've been wondering why she hasn't. And we're starting to see how God's hand of sovereignty and his timing is playing throughout this whole book of Esther. And we're waiting for her to tell the king what it is that she needs to save the Jews. Her people are about to be wiped out, but she hasn't done that yet. And so at the banquet, the second banquet, the king asked again, what is your request, Esther? Up to half of my kingdom, which again is just something you say as a king. He doesn't really mean it. But what is your request? And Queen Esther says this in verse 3 of chapter 7, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. So she's starting to draw in what's going on with her people, the Jews. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do such a thing? Now, you got a picture of the scene. Here's Haman. Here's King Xerxes, here's Esther, all at this wonderful banquet. Esther is telling what's going on and telling this incredible situation where lives are going to be taken. And now the king in fury is going, who is it? You can picture Haman with a big turkey leg. Um, and then you hear, ding, want to get away? She has said, there's someone. Haman knows that it is him, and then comes the death blow. Verse 6, Esther said, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And so the king rises up. He goes out in the courtyard. He's furious, but he's got to think. He's going... I need to do something with Haman, but if I put this on Haman, the reality is it was my signet ring that sealed the deal to wipe out the Jewish people. Now, I think, I think King Xerxes didn't fully know that it was the Jewish people because Haman was a great deceiver. And if you remember, Haman says, oh, there's a certain people in the land. The king signs the deal with his signet ring, and so he's wondering... How can I do this where I don't imply myself in this mix? So he's out in the courtyard, and, and here's what's so cool. We saw this last week, God's timing of things, his sovereignty. He's, he's be, behind the scenes, yet in all scenes. 
And what happens is, just at the moment that the king comes in from the courtyard, that the king comes in from the courtyard, what happens is, is here's Haman, he's terrified, he basically throws himself at Queen Esther upon her feet, upon her, her body, she's on the couch, she's reclining there, throws himself upon her, king walks in at that very moment, and basically uses that. What is this? I can't even leave for a moment, and you're not molesting my wife, basically coming after her, which, by the way, is totally inappropriate. There is no touching of the queen. There is no touching of the, of the king's concubines. You don't, you don't touch them. Right at the very moment, hmm, by accident, all of a sudden, Haman throws himself on the queen, and he sees it all, and now he can use that as a reason to take Haman out of the picture. And so the scriptures say they came and they put a cloak on his head. Basically what that means is you will die. You will die. And now there's a eunuch there and he just happens to mention, he's like, you know what? I recall seeing these wonderful gallows that Haman built. They're, they're over at his house. They're really nice, brand new. And so the king says, hang him on that. And if, if, if you know, and as you study the scriptures, it's not the gallows like we know. It's an impaling of Haman. And it's going to be, remember the measurement? 75 feet up in the air will Haman be put to the gallows and be put to death. And then the scriptures say, as Haman was put to death, the wrath of the king was abated. And so we end chapter 7. What is it that we see of who God is? What is it that we see of, of God working in the midst of radical reversal? One of, the, one of the characters that I see of our Lord, again, if you haven't been around to hear much of Esther, God's name is not mentioned in Esther, but we see God all over the place. And so part of the character of God playing in all these scenes is, is that we serve a God of justice. We serve a God who's always fighting for justice on our behalf. We live in a wicked world, and there's a lot of injustice, but our God is fighting for justice. And again, God's timing in all these things, God's timing of, of justice and radical reversals in our lives, uh, that's his timing. Sometimes that may not be till heaven that everything is played out to be made right. But God is a God of justice. Deuteronomy 32, Moses is crying out and is beautiful, singing out in this beautiful song. The rock, God, his work is perfect and his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness and he's without iniquity. He is just and he is upright. That is our God. You need to know that about the character of God in your life. As he is living and working in the scenes. He's working towards justice for us. For righteousness. For setting things straight. And again, some days that may not be till heaven. But this is our God. A God of justice. The other thing that I see in, in this chapter 7 of Esther is that sin or evil is exposed. 
sin becomes exposed, and in the, in the middle of this, all of a sudden it's cried out. It's Haman. All of this manipulation and this plotting and this living in the flesh and this living in evil and doing sinful things, it's all exposed. It comes now open in the air. The Scriptures remind us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. You see, sin separates us from God. Ultimately, ultimately, if we continue to live in sin, in a, in a life of sin that says, I want nothing to do with God, I'm going to live in my own flesh, I'm going to live without God, then not only is it, is it death here on this planet, but it's eternal death. The wages of sin, ultimately, are eternal death, unless we come into relationship with Jesus Christ. We will be separated from God forever, eternally. And sin in life gets exposed, and especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We, we for some reason, think that we can hide our sin. We, we become so often like, like a little child who's, who's playing hide-and-seek, and they're in the middle of the room, and they've got the blanket over their head, and they think that you can't see them in the middle of the room, this clump. And as you're searching for Susie, where's Susie? I don't know. I'm under this clump of blankets. We think we get away with it. We, we show up with chocolate all over our face and, and think nobody sees that. And the scriptures remind us, sin will be shouted from the mountaintops. You, you can't hide it. You can't hide from God. And, and we continue to think we can. And the deal is, as followers of Jesus Christ, is we don't want to stay in that place. I know you as a follower of Jesus Christ don't want to stay stuck in your sin because it's, it's killing your soul. And, and every time you're entering into sin, you realize that you're getting more and more uh, away from God who loves you. And so here this morning, you need to know that Christ wants to receive you back in. And, and, and he says, confess your sin. I'm quick to forgive. I want to I restore you. I want to give you strength again. I want to give you life in me. Because when you continue to hide your sin, that's where it's most powerful, right? The power of sin is in its hiddenness. When we, when we continue to hide it, it gets a hold of us. This is why pornography is, is so prevalent in our culture. You think you can just be in your room by yourself, nobody knows, and it's just killing you. It's killing you. And God wants you to confess that and come and, and receive his life. He wants you to confess it not only to him but to others so you can have strength by your side. Because sin will be exposed. And our Lord Jesus Christ wants to free you from sin. And we see that in this chapter of Esther in chapter 7. The other principle that we see is I think the principle of sowing and reaping, here's what Galatians says. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You can't fool God. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For one who sows his own flesh will reap from the flesh. He'll reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so let us not grow weary of doing good. That's a great scripture. 
For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. What are you sowing to? Are you living in the flesh? Are you living in your own strength? Are you, is all your purposes for you? Are you sowing to the Spirit? Going, God, what do you have for my life? Are you dependent upon Christ? Dependent upon the Lord bearing fruit of the Spirit? I'm remaining in the vine because that's my only source of life. What are you sowing to? David Guzik makes this comment. One might say that, that Haman, the evil one, he had climbed the ladder of success, but it was leaning against the wrong building. His ladder was leaning upon flesh and self and sin. And if we're going to climb the ladder, may it lean against God, the rock. What are we sowing to? We see in chapter 7 radical reverses that take place, especially at the moment when Esther says, it's Haman. You see, he's the one who condemned the Jews to die. And now he stands as the one who is condemned. Radical reversal. The gallows that were meant for Mordecai now are used upon Haman himself. Proverbs 11.8 says this, and it's so fitting. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. Radical reversal. Haman, you will take the place of Mordecai. You set this up. Haman is the one who is killed when we expected Mordecai and the Jews to be killed. Radical reversal. And I think all of this takes place because we serve a covenant God. God is a God who keeps His promises. God is a God who enters into covenant, this binding relationship. God cannot break His covenant. We break it all the time, but God cannot. When God makes a promise to us, He keeps it. When He makes a promise to His Jewish people, the people who He brought out of, the, out of Egypt and into the promised land, as He makes promises to Abraham. He can't break it. Here's what God says to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This beautiful covenantal promise of God. Warren Wearsby writes this. It seems that all things had gone silent in the heavens, but God is still at work in the stillness. He is the hidden helm turning the ship beneath the waves. The book of Esther is a book of perfect timing. What's impressive is not what Esther did or did not do, but what God does. The Jews were not spared because of good fortune or the quick thinking of Esther or Mordecai. It was all about God's faithfulness and his covenantal promises that he had made. This is, this is so much what we've been studying in 2 Corinthians. All about new covenant. What is new covenant? New covenant is, I'm not capable of anything spiritual, of spiritual life, of anything 
but it's all Christ in me, working through me. It's nothing has to do with me. My salvation, everything that, that is done for the kingdom, it's not about me. It's about God in me. I'm not adequate in and of myself. Esther realized that. Mordecai realized that. They were living New Covenant before New Covenant was happening. It's all God's faithfulness. It's God doing the work. He's using Esther to come into the presence of the king. He's using Mordecai to reveal the plot that's going on. And for us who live in New Covenant, it's realizing, God, you're doing that. Thank you. Thank you for living through me. You're a God of covenant promise. We have a covenant partner and one who keeps his promises to us. The last thing that I see in chapter 7 that's just an awesome truth is that there will be ultimate victory over the enemy. You know, I know every time you turn on the TV in the morning and you watch the news, you go, Satan is winning this deal. We, we seem to be losing the battle. But the truth is, is that there is ultimate victory in Christ. He wins. There's ultimate victory at the cross. There's ultimate victory over the enemy that has taken place. God has won the battle. We live in brokenness on this planet. We're aliens passing through. Our passports say heaven. And although it seems like Satan may be winning, it's not true. He has lost. Revelation 20. And they, the enemy, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. You ever feel like that? All of a sudden, here we are, the followers of Jesus. We got enemy all around us. Here the enemy came in around the beloved city, but, I always love it when there's a but, but fire came down from heaven and consumed the enemy. And the devil who had deceived them, he, the devil, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Christ has won. And so as we sang this morning, we will see him and we will rejoice in heaven and we will enter into his presence. There's no more tears. There's no more crying. We get to enter into the beauty of Christ and be in his presence because he's won. Haman is dead. Chapter 7. As you enter into chapter 8, as I see Haman hanging 75 feet above, there's song throughout the land going on. Ding dong, the witch is dead, the witch is dead, the witch is dead. I mean, everybody's rejoicing. The enemy is dead. The problem is, there's still an edict to wipe out the Jews. What can be done? And then the scriptures say, on that day, on the day that Haman is there, up on the gallows, on that day, all of chapter 8, it's, it's like watching episodes of 24. It's like, what's Jack Bauer going to do now? He's got an hour of time here. This is it. I mean, everything's put into a day. Between the hours of 3 and 4 p.m., Queen Esther is given the house of Haman. Queen Esther, as Haman's dead, now by the king, here, Esther, 
You get all control over the house of Haman. He was over the, all the princes, over all the provinces. He's number two in the, in the kingdom. And then Esther says, Mordecai, I want you to govern all this. I'm giving you authority. Take charge of this. Govern it. And then the king gives Mordecai the signet ring. Carte blanche. It's, it's whatever I do and put the signet ring down, it's the king's authority. It will be done. Here, Mordecai, the Jew who was about to be killed. Here, take the signet ring. Esther hands over the care to Mordecai. And you go, this is awesome. But the reality is the people are still going to die. The edict has gone out. Here come the German soldiers to wipe out any Jew in their way. And Esther pleads, King, please revoke these letters. And she says, and she enters in with her people so beautifully here, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? She identifies, identifies with her people and wants the king to know how it affects her. How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And the king says, as he hears her heart, and as she's crying before the king, I can't reverse this edict. It can't be done. Same thing was in Daniel. But, another good situation. But, you may write, as you please, a new edict regarding the Jews and use the king's signet ring. And so Mordecai wrote all these letters and sent them out on swift horses. And the letter said as they went out, you may assemble Jews and you may defend yourselves. You may go into battle. So fight and kill the enemy who comes against you. And Mordecai went and he left the presence of the king all on the same day. And he left in royal robes of blue and white. He's representing Cold Valley Christian School. And he sends out those horses that were chargers on their way to bring good news. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And here's what it says in chapter 8, verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached there was gladness and joy among the Jews a feast and a holiday and many peoples from the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them what a story What radical reversals. What amazing work of God. One of the things that we see in chapter 8 so clearly is who Esther is. She is the Christ character. Esther comes in and pleads before the king, enters into the throne with incredible courage and, and trusting God and intercedes on behalf of the Jews for their salvation. 
for their deliverance from death. And that's exactly what Christ does for us. He intercedes for us. He interceded all the way to the cross and died on the cross for us because we would die. We would have eternal death without him. And he rose again, and as we believe upon him, we shall have life, life now, life eternally. Christ interceded for us, and he intercedes on behalf of us before our God. Holy God, who can't be before sinful men, Christ intercedes, and now we can enter into the throne room unashamed. We can boldly come before our King because of Christ's intercession. And we see that with Esther as she goes before the King. I need you to spare my people. They're beloved to me. What radical reversals do we see? You have to understand something. There was certain death that was to come to the Jews. You could not change the edict. Everything seemed hopeless and lost. It was an impossible situation. But here's something that's amazing. God is a God of impossible things. And he works in things that seem so impossible. And he does radical reversal. In his timing, he changes things. He redeems them. He makes them whole again. Because we serve a God of radical reversal who works in impossible things. I was just on Facebook the other night, and I, I stalk most of you on Facebook. That's how I know what's happening in your lives. And sin is really exposed there, so it's good, good for me to pray for you. But here's one thing that's cool. That, that it, was just, it was just the other night, and I've told you this story before, but I wanted to remind you about it because it really touched my heart. But there was a young couple who, who was sharing how uh, they were celebrating their anniversary and how they had the opportunity to share it at a church and, and just all that God had done in their life because what happened was this, this beautiful young couple uh, was divorced. And it was, a, it was an ugly, painful divorce. And uh, the husband didn't know God, and, and it was just messy. And yet the husband actually wanted to spend some time with me, and so we had a chance just to, to talk about the love of Jesus. And he came, he came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. And, and then he started to fall in love with his wife again, and she actually started to fall in love with him again. And then I had the privilege, about a year after that whole episode, which was an impossible situation. It was messy. And I got to join them together, a little white chapel down at BSU. And they took, they took their old rings. He took the old rings that they had, and he, he melted them down and had it formed into a cross that she wears. New life in Christ. And they were celebrating on Facebook about how all that God had done. And not only that, but they, they had another child together. And now they raise a heritage of godliness in their home. God's a God of impossible things. And his timing and what he's going to do. Chuck Swindoll says, Don't ever try to convince me that some situation in this life is absolutely permanent. God can move in the heart of a king and he can move an entire nation. He can bring down the iron curtain. He can change the mind of your stubborn mate. He can move in the affairs 
of your community. He can alter decisions of presidents and prime ministers and present-day kings and dictators. No barriers too high for our God. No chasm too wide because he is not limited by space or time, by invisible or the invisible. You see, our God is a God who raises the dead and works in impossible things. Radical reversal. Mordecai goes out in royal robes. All of that belonged to Haman. Haman was the guy. And God changes it upside down. He takes that, yeah, that man who was humble and he puts him in a position of authority. That which was intended for evil now has the opportunity for good. Radical reversal. Our God is a God who changes hearts. Who changes hearts. You've got to understand something. Chapter 3, verse 15. Here's Haman. Here's Xerxes. Now, for some reason, I don't know why, we think Xerxes is not that bad. No, Xerxes is bad. He's evil. He's mean. Xerxes, even though maybe he didn't know it was the Jews he was going to wipe out, he's sitting there in chapter 3, verse 15, toasting with Haman, good, we're going to wipe out these people, whoever they are, because they're kind of a pain. And so evil Xerxes and more evil Haman toast together. That's the heart of Xerxes. Don't think for a second that he's Mr. Nice Guy. It only seems like it because Haman is so evil. But evil Xerxes now shows up in chapter 8, verse 8, and as he sees the pleading heart and he sees the tears of Esther, he's softened, and he says in, in verse 8 of chapter 8, Oh, write what you please. Write what you please so that the people might be saved. Write what it is that you need to write and seal it with my signet ring. You don't think that's a heart changed? He was a king who could really care less about anybody. He wanted someone dead, they're dead. God works in hearts. There's no wall so strong that Almighty God is not stronger. There's no will so stubborn that he's not able to soften it. God can change the heart of Xerxes. God can change any heart. Any heart. And for those of you who don't know Christ, don't know of his love, and have wondered, what is this all about? and your heart has been hard and you felt hopeless and lost, God changes your heart. He gives you a new heart and He gives you a new life as you place your faith in Him. That's the God of impossible things. Radical reversal. All of a sudden, the ring is given to Mordecai, that ring that was used to seal the death of the Jews is now for the defense of the Jews. They go from being defeated to being defended. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 19, It'll be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors that have come against them, 
He will send them a Savior, a Defender, a Deliverer, and He will deliver them. And our Lord will make Himself known. Our God is our Defender. He's our covenant God. He fights for us, and He gives us life. And so the word goes out. You have the right to assemble. You have the right to fight. And so fight. You know, sometimes we feel so defeated in our sin and our yuck. And we're like, I can't fight. No, fight. God will defend you. God will give you power to fight. When you feel oppressed and and broken, fight. Don't just stay in, in the junk it's a, it's a death trap. Fight. He's given you freedom and he's given you strength and weapons to fight. Defend your lives. And so the message goes out on those chargers. A message that initially, here's a radical reversal. What was the initial message? You're going to die. There's nothing but death that's going to happen to you. And that's really ultimately what life is without God. It's ultimate death, spiritually. But what happens? On quick horse, the message is sent out. And what's the message? It's a message of salvation. It's a message of deliverance. It's a message of I will fight for you. So fight. That's a God of radical reversal. He takes things that are dead and he brings them to life. That's who our God is and that's who we serve. And so the message is sent out. And they receive this message. And what's their response? Rejoicing and gladness. All they knew was death and darkness. And now they know light. A city that was in confusion is now has gladness and joy. Oh, the radical reversal of our God bringing us into joy and to gladness and to light. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you are the God of radical reversal. I thank you, Father, for your work in our lives, behind the scenes and in the scenes, that you are ever-present, that you are a covenant God who keeps his promises We are your people. We are your beloved. We are your children. And you love us and walk with us and empower us through your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that. I thank you this morning that we get to take communion together as a body of Christ. And would you minister to us and remind us of who you are. We thank you, Father, for your death and for your resurrection. And that as we believe upon you, we have life. May this time of communion... Minister that to us in your precious name. Amen.